You're watching Deprogram. This is the new Culture Forum show devoted to fighting back against the forces of ideological conformity, particularly among the young. My name is Harrison Pitt. I'm a senior editor at the European Conservative, and I'm thrilled to be joined today, as ever, by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist, and our special guest this week, Lord Andrew Roberts, the celebrated historian, research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and a conservative peer in the House of Lords. Now, uh, Lord Roberts, thank you for coming on to the programme today. No, it's um, always it's a delight. Thanks for having me thank on, you. Harrison. I appreciate it. Uh, barely a week goes by without some assault on British history in particular, or European history in general nowadays that we're going through a relentless culture war. What do you think motivates this onslaught in the main? Oh, it's motivated by politics and ideology, and they uh, attempt to make us feel ashamed of our past, uh, and attempt to try and uh, undermine um, Britain if possible, but, uh, but Europe in general. And uh, the way to counter it is to be um, forensically factual. Mm. So that's interesting that you say that we can leverage facts against this. If this is really motivated by sort of a cynical approach to British history rather than ignorance of British history, to what sense, to what extent are these people even going to be won over by facts if the, if the motivation in the first place isn't? You're not trying to win them over. You'll never win them over. Okay. What you're trying to do is persuade the public, the same public that they're mm. trying to persuade. And so what you do is to use facts and evidence and, if possible, ridicule as well, is <laughs> yes. always very helpful, yes. um, to um, show that they're wrong. But in yes. no way is there ever an attempt, I don't think, yes. to uh, actually uh, try and um, uh, persuade them, because they are, as I say, driven by, by ideology, ultra-woke ideology, Marxist ideology uh, sometimes, but whatever it is, it's a political attack. Very, very rarely do you actually get serious historians, for example, mm. um, coming up with these, um, these mad theories. Mm. The latest one was quite fun. It only happened a couple of days ago. Um, that uh, uh, Saxons, the, uh, the Saxons were all transsexuals. Oh, yeah. And the way we know that is, of course, because um, in some uh, graves that people believe are the graves of women, yes. um, there have been things like swords found. So automatically, of course, it's not because the sword might have belonged to the husband or father or son uh, of the of the woman. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's simply because they're transsexuals. And also the same. Sorry, damn, I was trying to keep a straight face all the way through this completely ludicrous theory. But it has been put forward by yeah. a don at, uh, at one of the universities. Um, not one of the universities you'd have heard of, but a, a university. <laughs> and the um, and the gentleman also wasn't able to prove that these were the um, graves of women either. Oh, God. Uh, so yes, exactly. So, <laughs> so it's on such unbelievably flimsy yes. grounds that, yes. this, that this theory is put forward. And clearly what you have to do is just look into the facts and, uh, and refute it if it sounds moronic. Mm. I, I used to agree with that kind of tact a lot more, but I think that... The fact that these things operate on these incredibly flimsy grounds and that they have to be kind of instantiated by force and like sheer propaganda. I mean, it takes a certain amount of uh, balls to insist that, you know, every sort of age old Viking was secretly transsexual. Um, it despite should take, the, sorry, despite I, the evidence. I, I'm not sure you're right there, actually, um, Evan, because it seems to take less and less or should it be fewer and fewer balls mm. um, <laughs> each time? Because uh, many more people seem to be open to uh, 
to listening to these theories and not just laughing at them. But do you think that, you know, these, these theories have been, they've at least captured a large part of academia, you know, political culture, mass media, um, despite their sort of the logical nature of them, and despite the fact that they, there is no real like factual basis to a lot of it. It's still deeply persuasive. It's um, due to like the propagandistic nature of it. So do you think that the way to counteract these people's sort of deep innate feeling that this is the right thing to do is with facts? Or do you... I, I really do. I think it's the one thing that the uh, public still respect. Um, I think if you just come back with um, a series of equally sort of ludicrous arguments or if you lose your temper or mm. if you um, uh, try to defund them or anything along those lines, um, then you look as though you're fearful of the truth. But the great thing is that the truth in 99% of cases is on our side. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I would never say like lie outright or come up with something ludicrous, but just don't be entirely reliant on the idea that the truth and only the truth will get you through it. You need to have that and a whole lot more. I did, I did mention ridicule. Yeah, well. <laughs> very, very important. I would say it's the most important part. Absolutely, because if you can make people laugh at these, yeah. um, at these people, actually that's half the battle won. Yeah. But they must be laughing at them because they know that what's said is ludicrous. Mm. And the way to do that is with facts. Yeah, it's also, uh, it's, it's, maybe there are also different challenges depending on which generation you're addressing, because I would agree with you that most of the older generation in this country, they might not be very clued up on the details of, you know, Churchill's views on, you know, Africa or Churchill's views on Indians or whatever it might be. But they do want to, uh, they do want to be reassured by people who do know a lot about that sort of stuff, because it, they, they do feel that there's an, an onslaught on, on a culture, which, you know, their grandparents fought for and all that sort of thing. So that there is that immediacy of, uh, in, in the older generation, I would say, to want to be reassured that Churchill was not, in fact, a monster and that the, 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 the British experience with empire was not, in fact, essentially exploitative or rapacious or whatever it might be. But among the younger generation, because these people, I mean, I have, have younger brothers myself, are being so systematically, basically systematically turned into amnesiacs in relation to our own history. Um, what, how, how would you go about addressing that? I think part of the problem is context. Mm. Um, because... Uh, we, again and again, in the subjects you've just mentioned, for example, um, need to try to put things in their proper historical context. If history isn't taught mm. uh, with enough context, and if uh, people don't have an historical imagination and a historical knowledge and background, then context starts to collapse in and mm. of itself. Mm. And that is a major problem we uh, undoubtedly have. The, uh, the way in which, for example, our history curriculum seems to jump from Henry to Hitler, um, you know, one minute you're doing the Tudors, mm. next minute you're doing World War Two, and the Nazis, and all that vital stuff mm. about, mm. you know, what made England England, um, and and certainly what made Britain Britain, mm -hmm. was what happened in between uh, the Tudors and the Nazis. Indeed. So, um, so yes, context is all. And it, sorry, I was just going to say, quickly, it, it becomes particularly difficult in the context, just because you mentioned the Nazis, mm. it becomes particularly difficult in the context of empire. Because the, because uh, because the the Nazi the Third Reich looms so large over people's imaginations today in the in the in the West, rightly so. Um, it means that it becomes very difficult. It muddies the lens through which we see earlier iterations of empire. Because of course the Nazi template for empire, or indeed the Japanese template for empire in the East, which was was of course explo exploitative, rapacious, even like ultimately genocidal. Hmm. You know, look. But at it was the, also. I mean, maybe it wasn't so much an empire either of those things. They would they were. They were short-term conquered mm -hmm. yes. territories. Yes. Um, there was no real attempt to to rule 
um, either the Japanese or the uh, Nazi empires for the, um, for the, for the betterment of the, of, the, um, of the native peoples, mm -hmm. and also it was all over in 13 years. Indeed, and you just need to ask the Filipinos and the Poles on both of those <laughs> questions to get an idea of like, how is your experience of Japanese empire and Nazi empire respectfully, but nevertheless it has become the template through which, the lens through which we see all empires. Because um, other um, much more um, serious and significant and better empires <laughs> are, not, uh, are not taught Indeed. systematically, or at least only the bad bits of them are. Indeed. Um, and uh, so, yes, it, when I was um, uh, being um, taught um, history, it was a very wide template. You'd start with the sort of um, Arbroath in <laughs> the medieval period. You go up to uh, the outbreak, actually, of the of the Second World War. So history mm. sort of stopped in 1939. Um, and, um, but I was... Uh, 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 Hitler only died 18 years before I was born, so oh, yeah. um, so in a sense that was you know the, appropriate. The appropriate. Yeah. Um, and there was a, uh, a a real sense that you were supposed to learn um, everything. Mm. You had you had tests with 200 plus dates, mm -hmm. and the and the class was expected to get 80 to 90 percent of them right, and um, and did by the mm. way. That was the other thing they did. And so if somebody asked you what happened in 1588 or 1640 or something, mm -hmm. you would be able to say in a way that I'm not sure that many school children today would be Certainly able not. to. And what that fails to do, see, dates are key. They're the absolute key building blocks for narrative, for chronology. You can't understand something unless you know what happened before it. And that is why um, you're absolutely right, that if you jump from from Henry to Hitler, you're going to miss out the context necessary to appreciate the positive things that happened, certainly in British history, in between the two. I would say on the point of your amnesiac brothers and those like them, you can't actually forget something you never learned. Indeed. Yeah. Um, oh, that's true, yeah. yeah. But I, I do wonder, I mean, it does seem now in, in modern conflicts, and I know you've written sort of about the history of warfare, but it seems now when I look at how we, how we talk about wars in 2024, it's always Nazi versus Nazi. The Palestinians are Nazis and so are the Israelis. The Ukrainians are Nazis and so are the Russians. I mean, everything's getting boiled down to mid-century Germany. And I do wonder if this sort of um, extreme level of low resolution thinking about like the nature of conflict and the nature of like, there's more than just one sort of bad ideology in the world than Nazism, which is more or less completely defunct by now. There's a couple of cranks out in the hills, but it's gone from any sort of serious threat. Yeah, I think a couple of things. Firstly, obviously, one should never um, use the Nazis um, for really discussing pretty much anything other than the Nazis. I think that um, it, it, because it doesn't actually tell you that much. Yes, of course, there are fascist elements of Hamas, and in many ways Hamas actually are worse than the Nazis, obviously not on a quantitative level, but on a qualitative level, mm. and the way in which they boast mm. about their crimes rather than attempt to hide them and so on. But, um, but very rarely is it possible genuinely to equate things to the Nazis. In fact, usually when people start using the word Nazi or fascist, they've already lost the argument. Um, and the obvious other point, especially about uh, the 20th century, is that communists killed more people than mm. Nazis did anyhow. So the evil of communism is somehow, it strikes me, lessened in the, pub in the public uh, mind by this constant um, obsession with the, with the Nazis, who were the, who were the um, uh, number one 
threat to uh, world peace and civilization for 13 years, but not for 70 plus years like mm. the communists mm. were. So it's very important that we don't get into a um, into a, a state where, as you say, everything is seen in the uh, in the context of the Nazis. Although, of course, there was a mindset of fascism that still exists very much um, in. Uh, uh, in in undemocratic countries today. Hmm. So yes, this is the problem with uh, like reducto ad Hitlerum. Everybody, <laughs> everybody I don't like is eventually Hitler. I haven't um, heard that expression before. It's a very good one. Yeah, I like. Um, but the, the, uh, <laughs> don't be surprised if I shamelessly plagiarize go, that. Well, without, I didn't come up with it either. I'm without, shamelessly uh, plagiarizing myself. But, um, <laughs> the, the point the point that I was trying to make was you touched on it there with the communism aspect is like because we're always focused on like who's closest to the Nazis and if you're slightly right of center, you too are mm. a Nazi. Um, are we allowing in, you know, sort of these quiet different parts of the world, or less quiet now as Gaza's become, um, these sort of new wicked ideologies to spread in a way that we can't really begin to understand them, so we can't really begin to fight back against them? Well, we're not um, allowing them to spread so much as they are spreading. I mean, um, it's uh, not, fascism is a form of um, politics that metasizes constantly um, anyhow, you know, you're going to be constantly seeing it um, in different forms, you know, like cancer. Um, but there's also a sense, I think, that with regard to communism, we do put it in a, in a sort of separate box. We al almost say that because the communists claimed that they wanted everyone to be equal, therefore they although they went horribly badly wrong under Lenin and Stalin, etc., um, are sort of better people mm. than the Nazis who kill people because of, um, of race. And somehow class is one thing and, and race is another. No, it's not. If you, if you kill people on the basis of anything... Tell the Kulaks uh, that. Yes, yeah, so precisely. Yeah. So precisely. All the poor old um, Ukrainians, you know, um, in the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, these are... Um, uh, these are a it's, a, it's a sort of form whereby we sort of let off the, um, the um, men of 1917 in Russia in a way that we will not, and rightly not, um, let off the, um, the men of Nuremberg in 1933. Yes, yeah, so if, we, if we do get from that, the sort of, because I think it is true that even though the 20th century needs to be studied in tremendous depth, it's incredibly important, you've written about it uh, a, a great deal, there is a sense in which it, it distorts our, our our, our sort of uh, our ability to process all prior history. So, if I were to ask you a question, a, a counterfactual question, potentially a little broad, but, but how would the how would the world be different if European powers like Britain had never built non-European empires overseas? Oh my gosh! Uh, <laughs> first of all, I want to differentiate strongly differentiate the British Empire from a lot of the other but the other um, European the, ones, European contemporary ones, uh, contemporary. Of the of the European yeah. um, of the British Empire, yeah, yeah. Um, the um, what the Germans were doing in Southwest mm. Africa, what the French were doing, and continue to do in Algeria into the nineteen fifties, what the um, mm. Spanish and uh, Italians did in Asia, you know, was much more vicious than the um, overall boyish tyranny of the British Empire. As Santiago said, absolutely, yeah. and yes, there were some uh, some terrible you know, awful things that did happen in the uh, uh, British Empire, but the uh, the positives way outweighed the negatives. And that is not true necessarily of the Italians in Somaliland yeah, sure, or, sure. The, or the um, or what was happening in, uh, I don't know, um, 
uh, Tanzania for the Germans, Spanish Philippines sometimes, yeah, and sure. things like that. So, so first differentiating the um, the empire of a um, of a power like Britain, which had a very strong uh, parliament at Westminster that would pick up and denounce. Mm -hmm. um, uh, true vicious exploitation and uh, and so on. You see that again and again. Also, of course, the British um, Empire was central to the abolition of slavery um, in a way that that was not true of the uh, of the Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, and other mm. um, empires. So, um, so I I would say that in the counterfactual, the only mm. bit of the counterfactual that I'd be qualified to or in any way interested <laughs> the British in, one. in walking down that that route would be the uh, the British one and there were larger parts of the um, British Empire that simply were not the utopias that have been made out um, but before be, the British got there you mean before the British got there <laughs> uh, and and indeed in many cases after the British left indeed as well of course yeah. but um, but you know uh, intertribal um, fighting and, and rivalry and the Mughal invasion of, um, of India and so on. These are um, straightforward facts of history mm -hmm. which um, tend to be underplayed by people whose sole um, interest is, uh, for ideological and political reasons mm -hmm. very often as well, try to um, equate the British Empire with uh, all of those other empires and of course as we mentioned earlier the Nazi Empire. Mm. What, what about the um this, this is interesting because, I mean, I think when you, you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that when the um, Germans uh, carved up, uh, the Nazis carved up Poland in August of 1939 uh, with, with the Soviet Union, I think they sent something like two to three million troops into into Poland in order to occupy it because obviously the, the Poles weren't going to, you know, take that lying down. It was in the September of 1939. September of 1939, yeah. Dates are important, as you were saying earlier. Got that one slightly wrong. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, um, in in British India, like the, the, the sort of the white British colonial administrators were far outnumbered by the, the Indian native populations. The idea that Britain would have been able to subdue a country the size of India at that time, without some kind of implicit well, that's one relationship. of the relationship. That's one of the, um, absurd, of the important it? points. Exactly. It was. Um, it was. Well, the uh, British Empire in India was run by collaboration. Yes. Um, and uh, collaboration itself, of course, has got lots of weight, weighted today. terms today. Yeah. But at the time, it was uh, considered to be a, a, a positive word. Indeed. And um, and yes, it would have been completely impossible to have uh, imposed with the force of. Um, just 150,000 or so troops, mm -hmm. um, Britain's will on 300 million um, Indians. Mm -hmm. that, that couldn't have been done. So instead what happened was a, um, I think co-option is actually a much better word than the collaboration. Yeah. The Indian princes that ruled about a third of India were co-opted mm -hmm. into uh, supporting British rule. Um, the, um, the way in which the uh, Hindu majority was not allowed to lord it over the Muslim and untouchable mm -hmm. minorities mm -hmm. in the way that, by the way, I think they're doing right now Indeed, in, a, yes. in, a, in a way that's completely uh, outrageous. Um, these were the things that ensured uh, the, the fact that the British were willing to uh, put um, lives on the line protecting the Punjabi farmers from mm. the imprecations of the 
of the um, Talib and the uh, Afridi and other And Churchill, Churchill fought in those skirmishes as well, didn't Churchill he? Churchill fought himself, of course, and wrote, an, and wrote a brilliant book, The Malakan Field Force, about that. Yeah. So, you know, you could see, the other thing is, unlike Hitler in, uh, in Poland, who wiped out all the mm. um, intellectuals and uh, killed the trade unionists mm. and killed the aristocracy and, um, mm. and shot 14,000 officers, um, sorry, uh, no, that was the that was the communists. That was the, that. That the Katyn massacre, wasn't he, it? Yeah. Um, he, he shot quite a few officers, Indeed. but not uh, he didn't uh, he didn't um, massacre fourteen thousand of them. But he did go down to even breaking up, for example, the Polish um, uh, the Polish Boy Scout movement. Mm, yeah, you know, yeah. That was that is one way of trying to run a country. What the uh, what the British did in India was the precise opposite. Indeed, yeah. If you look at the hundred richest. People in India in 1939—they're all Indians, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is certainly not, <laughs> not what you'd expect. Not what you'd expect yeah. from a from a sort of supposedly rapacious mm. and um, exploitative, um, you know, mm. uh, British um, rule. Yes. Yeah. So Go it's on. pretty common to hear this sort of refrain of um, you know, England colonized the world, and now it's only right that the world comes back and colonizes England in return. Um, usually put in slightly angrier and less uh, articulated ways than that. Um, what do you, let's consider that like a, like a, like a meme in actually the way of like the word was originally met, not pictures on the internet, you know, that spreads through people um, and that is, is very hard to kill this kind of like idea virus of, of I don't know, uh, revenge recolonization. What do you think it would take to break that meme? Would it take facts and logic of learning really about how India was structured in 1939? How could we best fight well, back against that? That and also, I suppose you look at who, who. I mean, I, I can't think that anybody really does think in terms of England being colonised by um, by foreign countries. But if you look at the people who are coming, especially the illegal immigrants that are coming, they're not actually from. Um, t they tend not to be, at least, from countries that was uh, that mm. were. Um, colonised by by Britain, we didn't have a uh, a colony in Syria, um, for, for example, um, French, Albania French or um, or lots of the lots of the countries that people are coming to Britain mm. from. Um, so I think just on the as you say the factual uh, side of things, that's um, that's incorrect. Um, but also in a in a wider sense, you know, this is with colonisation has um, you know. Essentially, at least the British British Empire died a death in the 1940s and 1950s. We are now 75 plus years uh, beyond that, and it's only really uh, I noticed during Brexit the Remainers going on about how the, we wanted the Brexiteers wanted a to reclaim um, our empire to yeah, empire 2.0, mm. and what absolute rot mm. that is! The idea that there's any kind of you know revanchist, atavistic. Um, nostalgia for um, for that and and making it a political movement today mm. is sheer rubbish. Mm. And yet you hear it the entire time. No, it's pretty. It's, it's become a pretty common refrain on the sort of sour Remainer mm. um, side of politics. Mm. Uh, one thing, I suppose, one of the things that because I, I do actually um, encounter some of this some of this language. It doesn't necessarily have to be coherent to be effective, which is part of Evans' point, I suppose. I mean, th th there is this there is this belief. I mean, even people like Sadiq Khan, like the mayor of, Lon mayor of London, he's authorized poems on the London Underground, which uh, it says like signed, approved by the mayor of London, which talk about Britain 
through mass immigration being colonized in reverse. And the, the, the implicit suggestion is that, well, this is our just desserts, given that we sort of rapaciously went all around the world and started invading other people's countries and, and all the rest of it, that therefore we're entitled to some of our own medicine. That, that is quite a common refrain. And it, I think it's morally buttressed by the idea, to the extent that it's buttressed at all, it's morally buttressed by the supposition, not the idea, but the supposition that Britain enriched itself off the back of this exploitative project and that Britain is fundamentally built on slavery and colonialism. H how would you go about disentangling Britain in particular and Europe's great divergence from the rest of the world in terms of wealth? This is something that your friend Neil Ferguson has written about in his book, Civilization. How would you disentangle that, as I think we need to disentangle it from, our experience with empire and with slavery and all those sorts of things? Well, I just teach the Industrial Revolution. Man. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not that difficult. I was taught the Industrial yeah. Revolution, you know. It, uh, it, um, it, that was the thing that, yeah, yeah. Um, that enriched Britain. It enriched Britain first and therefore allowed Britain to have the uh, wealth and resources then to expand across the um, yeah. oceans. The idea that it was the other way around, uh, the way around <laughs> is just, a, a, there we go, yeah. go back to chronology, go yeah. back to, to, to narrative. Yeah. Um, the fact is that... Um, You're making it sound so simple. Um, well, I don't think it's that complicated. Indeed. It, it, so, long as, so long as you get history taught... Um, in a dispassionate way. In, a, in, a, in an objective way. Mm. That's, the, that's the problem. History should not be a, a, a political back, battleground. It should be somewhere that um, one can learn lessons, obviously, uh, but mm. also where one can get um, uh, delightful intellectual mm. pleasures. Mm. Um, but, uh, but the idea of trying to um, use it for... Um, Propaganda on the underground uh, for for you know some Labour uh, politician is um, is to is to lessen it. Mm. I think in my view. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I once again agree with you in in, in theory and, and, <laughs> and think that that's a very noble aspiration. But I mean, maybe I'm spending too much time on the darker corners of Twitter. I mean, there's this idea of the myth of neutral institutions which it's like if you want history or you want the education system in general to be apolitical and um, above the sort of uh, back and forth foray that everything else is getting into, and the other side doesn't and is highly motivated to make sure that they get their way, don't you in a sort of game theoretical sense just inevitably lose? I think, actually it's interesting you should say that because there was a, an article in the Times today by um, Anthony Selden, who I like very much personally and is a, is a, uh, is a chum in fact. And he was asking um, much the same question, or at least he was trying to say that uh, it was a um, symptom of British decline, modern British decline, that we trash institutions like the civil service, the BBC, and... Uh, there was a third one. Oh, the, the ancient universities. Mm. Um, but I would argue that actually it's the exact opposite. It's because of the decline of mm. the BBC, of the objectivity in the BBC, the ancient universities and the civil service, uh, which we have seen so many examples of so often over recent years. Mm. That is the thing that's leading to national decline. Mm. So he's got, in my view, the, um, the cart and the horse um, mixed up. Mm. And that if you could go back to days when universities didn't think that it's their duty to push political views and, um, and the BBC was able to be genuinely objective on things like Gaza and, uh, and um, what's happening in, uh, 
um, in Palestine. And also, if you had a sense that the um, civil service, and we saw an example of it just yesterday with the COVID inquiry, that um, where somebody, a senior civil servant, tried to claim that um, COVID was made much worse by Brexit. Mm. You know, this is just classic <laughs> use of, of, um, uh, of essentially you know, left-wing propaganda coming from um, institutions that once were above all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And if we could go back to objectivity, I think that, uh, that the um, decline of the country that um, Anthony Seldon writes about um, could be halted and reversed. Oh, okay, well, let's, let's talk practical solutions and my favorite topic on this podcast. If you were in the position to sort of make Britain wander back towards objectivity, how would you go about doing it? What would you actually do? How could we reform these institutions? Well, let's look at three of them then, shall we? Um, the, uh, um, the BBC should have a um, chairman who is absolutely opposed to this, um, this creeping left-wing ideology. Um, you could have Paul Dacre, you could have Charles Moore, you could have any number of people. Um, you would also need a board, by the way. It's not just the chairman, mm. it has to be supported. Um, uh, you would, in the universities, have at least two um, Tory masters um, of colleges. At the moment, out of the 72 um, heads of college at Oxford and Cambridge, only one is a Conservative. Um, you know, that's what, 3% or something, um, something uh, like that, no, less, um, which is completely ridiculous, in, in my view, anyhow. And, um, and then in the civil service, Oh, large-scale sackings would be great from the <laughs> no, from the moment that you you have somebody who um, is is very clearly putting their own personal uh, political opinions mm. above the um, above the job, um, then then out they go and uh, and you see it. I'm afraid too often, and uh, it's a uh, it's a major problem for the country. But, there, but lots of people have come up with lots of solutions. You know, actually, there was a, a very good uh, report that um, one of my fellow um, peers put out about the uh, reform of the civil service. And we have a Conservative government. This is the time to actually put these kind of reforms in place. But the trouble is that, first of all, of course, there's not much time left. And secondly, um, the civil service have done a very good job you, by the way, being helped a lot by the BBC and the universities, mm. um, of um, of seeming to be uh, to be neutral when they're not. Yeah, mm. to bring in history again, it's not completely clear to me why we need half a million civil servants when there were only roughly around twelve thousand running India <laughs> in, 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 in around nineteen ten. It's not obvious that I mean, with large scale sacking wouldn't only be ideologically sensible; it could be ultra efficient as well. Um, I suppose we could get into. Um, I would quite like to ask you this, actually, because you know, we're talking about um, the, the facts of history, but people might say, well, why does this stuff matter? I mean, why is it important in the person of Churchill, for example, to defend the legacy of a man who died in 1965? Um, like, there are many, even on the alleged right of, of politics, who will argue that the culture war, those kinds of culture war skirmishes are really just an indulgent distraction, and we, we shouldn't really get involved in and that sort of thing. How, how would you respond to people, not so much who are hostile to our history, but are indifferent to it? Well, I don't think the Tory party has got terribly much involved uh, in it. Mm. Keir Starmer was trying to uh, denounce um, 
the uh, Tories the other day for getting into the culture wars. All that's happened over the last however many years mm. of Tory government has mm. been, what is it, 14, mm. is that we've lost on every front <laughs> in, the, in the culture wars. If yeah. the Tories were fighting a culture war, um, then, uh, then they, <laughs> they, would have, <laughs> they would have won one battle by now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, instead they've lost, uh, they've lost pretty much all of them. And, um, and when George Osborne... Uh, gives back the um, uh, Elgin marbles. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll have lost probably <laughs> the most important uh, of them all, and that's only a matter of time. So yeah. um, so yes, the the, uh, the the idea that we are stamping our um, our um, our fist on the uh, on the culture of Britain yeah. is a complete absurdity. But why should we? Idea. Why should we be? I suppose is the question. Oh, because it's actually going to be something that's going to be um, more indicative of what kind of a nation we are mm. than what the national insurance rate is. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, people do need to um, people do need to be able to look at their history and feel part of a, an, an historical, a golden historical thread, don't they? Not necessarily golden. There's plenty of, of it that is a fairly shitty um, <laughs> uh, historical but thread. But there is a continuum. There is a thread. There is a narrative arc yes. that needs to be known about and understood and taught. But though we shouldn't fetishize history and look look at it through rose-tinted spectacles, we should. It's important to have a pantheon, for example, of historical heroes who we, we don't fetishize them and make them into false gods. Like you're you're you're, I mean, you're an, clearly an admirer of Churchill. It's, your, your Churchill biography is full of. You know criticisms of Churchill, he made things, mistake mistakes, after mistake, mistake after, after mistake. mistake. You know, no, of course you did. And, yeah, and exactly. as you say, like I should have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. This is what he wants. He wants said learned, to his wife, as he learned and he in, learned from. Indeed, them. You see, each of the great mistakes that he made, yeah. um, he uh, he learned something yes. uh, at least from them. And and the most the key one, of course, is not to make the same mistake <laughs> again. But it, it does seem to be that we do need to have people whose achievements we can elevate in the public sphere, whose yeah. statues we can walk around mm. and we can feel inspired by them without having to make them mm. into the sort of pristine saints. Yeah. The, yeah, in ancient Greece, they uh, yes. they uh, worshipped the gods and the heroes. It wasn't just the gods; mm. it was also the heroes, yes. the, the, the past heroes, people who've done something um, extraordinary and special and remarkable for a uh, for a country ought to be um, admired. And by the way, is that such a, a, an outrageous remark no. to make, considering that there's hardly a country in the world yes. that um, that doesn't have. Yes individuals on their banknotes or statues or whatever. Mm. It's a perfectly understandable, natural part of the human condition to look into your past, mm. see people who have done remarkable things and uh, celebrate them. Yes. So if I look at modern Britain, let's say we were able to, to resurrect the heroes and we didn't have to put Churchill back in a box, um, but we had no God. Do you not think then that, you know, because we would Without, without a sort of, you know, the Christian backbone of this country that you would then be kind of forced to turn Churchill into a deity and keep Hitler as a devil. Love the idea of putting the word Christian and backbone mm. into the same uh, same phrase. We just learned today, obviously, about uh, how much the Church of England has been mm. helping illegal immigrants um, uh, come up with this uh, idea that you can stay in the country if you call yourself a Christian. Yeah. Um, where? Well, that worked where? for me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where you're not a rapist, though, are you? <laughs> or a sexual uh, deviant that we know will, of. Will that uh, work for me? It would, well, it, it, it would do if you uh, if you went to the right um, you went to the right place, asked the right uh, vicar, and uh, and he'll be he'll tell the um, he'll tell the um, immigration authority that you should be allowed to stay in this country despite your two. 
not one, but two sexual offences, mm. um, because you've um, persuaded some naive idiot that you've um, become a Christian. Yeah, devout man of God. It's an extraordinary, <laughs> it's an extraordinary situation <laughs> yeah, we've yeah. managed to get ourselves into uh, in this uh, in this country. But as you, but to get back to you, to the answer to your question, um, I um, I do think that uh, that the heroes need to be um, admired and celebrated as much as um, not set up into a national religion, obviously, mm. but need to be uh, admired far more than they are at the moment. Mm. I, I suppose we can all argue about who they are. You know, of course, that's, that's the other part, thing. It's part, part it's of the fun. Part of the nat great. It's yeah. part of the natural right. um, national debate. It's but to assume, as as a lot of um, of sort of nihilists yes. do in Britain today, that there's no such thing as a hero. Yes, that yes. every single person um, has. I mean, all heroes have some feet of clay. But the idea mm. that they are just feet of clay, essentially, mm. Mm. Um, is um, I think is a, a an absolute recipe for national suicide. Mm. Who, do, who do you think is a great British hero that we know very little about? Mm. Well, it's, I mean, the great thing about... You can think about, of one good one. We, yeah. um, it, it, is that actually people are taught so little about, uh, yeah. about any at all. Um, well, I mean, that, that, that's what I do for a living. Mm. Just um, any of my books will give you an answer to that. A mercenary answer. Um, there, are, there, are just, there are dozens. I tell you somebody I'd like people to know a bit more about, Lord Curzon. Mm. No uh, idea who that is. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, I'm not it's a very good biography of um, uh, Americans should learn about Lord Curzon mm. as well, um, because he was able to civilize a continent. Which one? India. There you go. No mean, no mean feat. The last thing I'd like to ask you. I'm not saying that America is totally uncivilized. Obviously, <laughs> I am. Well, no, partly, partly, <laughs> because, partly because of Curzon's influence. I think, yeah, you know. Uh, you had a run-in with uh, the director Ridley Scott recently, didn't you? Would you like? Well, no. I mean, he he never responded to me, so I wouldn't he, say. He, did. he said. He said. Didn't he? Didn't he say something like, "Well, he wasn't there." Um, no, he said that of all historians. Oh, of all, so it wasn't in fact, you actually, he didn't just call. He didn't just say historians. He said effing historians. <laughs> what do they know? Yeah, they yeah. weren't there. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't just um, uh, uh, me. And of course, I. I actually. I'm the first to admit I wasn't there when Napoleon was uh, winning the Battle of Waterloo, losing the Battle of Waterloo. Yes. But. Um, lots of people were, and they write about it, <laughs> and they've written, um, they've written many thousands yeah. of, uh, of memoirs about um, Napoleon, and w our job as historians is to read them and to, no, uh, including the 40,000 letters that uh, Napoleon's written, and to try and find out something, therefore, about Napoleon. And the, person, the thing that we all found out was that he was nothing like <laughs> the person who Ridley Scott um, portrays it in the movie, who you wouldn't have followed for two minutes. Yeah. I mean, mm. it would be insane to, um, to, to uh, follow a man who was just so intensely grumpy for three hours and 27 minutes. We, we live in an age of Netflix, though, where we're talking about people being incredibly ignorant when it comes to history. But when people do get in touch with history, it's usually through not necessarily culture war um, skirmishes, but popular entertainment, sort of biopics and historical drama. Does it matter if these things are not completely historically this bona fide? Is where, this is actually where I feel a bit guilty with yeah. regard to Ridley Scott, because um, the uh, sales of my book went up 28,500 <laughs> copies uh, in the six weeks that his, that his movie came out. So in a sense, I ought to be thrilled that yeah. the movie was quite as bad as it was, because <laughs> that meant that lots of people... Um, 
bought my book in order to find out what the truth was. Sort of correction. And yeah. and you know why this guy actually was a much more impressive mm. figure than the than the sort of moping. Um, uh, Surly teenager. Surly teenager, exactly. <laughs> that uh, Joachim Phoenix yeah. um, um, portrayed. But um, but no, you see, bad history. If, if everyone was taught history utterly brilliantly at school, I don't suppose people would be, would be buying my books. Mm. But uh, so bad history actually is quite useful as far as <laughs> I'm concerned. But um, but nonetheless, isn't it a tragedy, really, though, that uh, somebody had $300 million to mm. spend on a movie mm. about Napoleon mm. And um, it chose to see all of the decisions Napoleon took through the prism of his love affair with Josephine, yeah, yeah. which he also got wrong about, yes, by the way. Yeah. So all in all, it was... Um, could have told a better story. Oh, so much more mm. interesting story mm. than one in which he leads cavalry charges at the Battle of Waterloo and fires at the pyramids and has <laughs> and, and has the most, uh, just oh, an explo explosive cannonballs at yeah. the Battle of Waterloo as well. Yeah, I mean, there was what, a mistake at Austerlitz well, as well, Oh, wasn't the there? whole of the Austerlitz battle, which was lovely to watch, of course it was, yes, yeah. is complete rubbish. The, the, um, <laughs> the firing on the... On the uh, lakes, the yeah, yeah. Uh, the iced lakes, um, they've uh, they've uh, dived those lakes and they found, I think, two cannon and a couple of breastplates of, yeah, of yeah. cuirasses. Other than that, um, it just simply was not the uh, battle-winning tactic yeah. that it's made out to be. Now, listen, I understand that these are supposed to be entertainments; they are not documentaries, uh, of course, but. If only he'd hired an historian, not necessarily me, but pretty much any um, Napoleonic historian. If he'd hired them, he would have been saved from all of these moronic mistakes and he'd have wound up making a much more interesting movie. Lord Roberts, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. What a complete delight. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, Harrison. Thank you very much, uh, Evan. Brilliant. Uh, Evan, thanks as Of course. You've been watching Deprogrammed. Make sure to like, subscribe and leave a comment if you wish. And we shall see you on the next one. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free, just remember, to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.